This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. I'm really happy to see you, Barbara, today. And you, me too. Thank you for accepting to participate in my podcast, Conversations with the President. I think we have a lot to discuss together. Yes, absolutely. When we use the expression, we're sitting on the shoulders of giants, I often think of you. (laughs) There are many ways to take that comment. (laughs) Speaking as a fat person, I've often been referred to as a giant one way or another. (laughs) It would take probably all the time we have to go through everything you did for our community and all the battles you fought and all the organizations you've been involved with. But maybe starting with the last one, you received last year the Louis Saint Laurent Award which is one of the most important awards our association is giving and named after a uh, Canadian prime minister who was also president of our association for your outstanding contribution to the legal community. So congratulations. I also know that you're one of the founding members of the SOGIC section. Maybe we can start there. So how did you end up being one of the founding member? Could you give us some history about the creation of that section? In 1992, I decided that I needed to resolve the impossible tension between being a lawyer by day and a lesbian by night. And so I created for myself an identity as a lesbian lawyer. I think, as far as I know, the first time anybody had ever called themselves that. And and I set up a private practice intending to provide legal services to queer communities. And... It was the wonderful time when the Charter Challenges program existed. And so I was, and I have always believed that to create social change, you need the law, you need community education, and you need publicity or the broader spectrum of things. So a media strategy, a community development strategy, and a legal strategy. And I applied for and was was given consultation funding. So I thought, hmm, we need a national queer lawyers group. Well, there was only like, I only knew a tiny handful of queer lawyers across the country. But With the funding from Core Challenges, I invited a few of them to come to Vancouver and we sat around and decided that, yes, we needed a national queer lawyers group. And Doug Elliott in particular and I set up SOGIC and we we, each of us began in our respective province to request that a provincial organization be established. And that caused them some consternation because it was the first time they'd ever had an organization that wasn't a legally like family law or administrative law or something like that, but an affinity group. And that was quite a shocking proposition. Nevertheless, we, we prevailed and soon enough we had a national organization. Congratulations. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a time for sure. So Barbara, you fought many battles. So can you tell us where is this courage, energy, willingness to change things is coming from? Um, Honestly, Steve, I have no idea. I, I mean, I, I, I think I would say that I kind of did what was in front of me, what seemed to need to be done. And, and so that meant that 
I mean, when I when I opened my legal practice in 1992, the law relating to queers was a desert. There was, for example, no family law regime relating to queers at all, period. We were invisible. And when I acted for the non-bio mom in a lesbian family where they had had a child together, I'd go to court on behalf of the non-bio mom and the court would treat her as a legal stranger, like entirely. So work needed to be done. It was pretty, pretty, pretty clear. How about you? What was it like for you to enter that? When, when did you get called to the bar? I was called to the bar in 1999. Oh, there you go. So I was called in 77. So it was like we're almost a generation apart. And 22 years for our community, it's almost a century. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like when you when you hit the profession? I was I wasn't out when I went to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, no one knew that I was gay. So I made my coming out in 2001 when I was then practicing in Montreal. So that was quite a journey, even if it's when you think about it, it's only 22 years ago, but it was a different time. Yeah. 22 years ago, it was even before gay marriage was legal in Canada. So it took another two or three years. So it put things in perspective when you look at all the battles of the LGBTQ2S community. So uh, when you came out, did you have repercussions from coming out? I don't think so. I don't think so. I couldn't find a single major thing that happened to me in my personal life and um, professional life. However, it was late because I was already 25 years old at the time, uh, which may sound surprising in 2023. Uh, So I was ready. And I think my environment, my family, my professional network was ready. I wouldn't say it was easy for me, but it was certainly easier being more mature, knowing also who I was and being able to talk about it genuinely and with confidence. So it helped, I think. You talked about same-sex marriage and, you know, in... uh about 1993 or f- so, maybe 1994, we had a meeting of the then queer lawyers in the country. A gal hosted the meeting, and and it was in the face of the first gay marriage case, which was argued in Ottawa and lost. And we collectively were concerned We were concerned for political reason. We thought this is the wrong case to start with. So we got together and we decided collectively that our litigation strategy for the country would be to litigate partnership benefits, analogizing between lesbians and gay men on the one hand and common law partners on the other. We decided that marriage was like, the shibboleth, it was that people were going to freak if we said marriage. So off we went to court and said, we have nothing to say about marriage. This is not about marriage. Don't worry. We don't want to get married. <laughs> and we there and thereby one, one, one jurisdiction, one law, one initiative at a time, we knocked down 
any of the laws that discriminated against same-sex partner in the partnership benefit regime. So how did you react when the Supreme Court of Canada rendered its decision in Egan in 1995, confirming the decision of the federal court to deny benefits to a gay men couple? Well, we figured that we had lost the battle and won the war. That decision turned on basically on a section one argument and 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 so it was four four and one i I have to say mr justice sapinka may he get the eternity he deserves (laughs) for for his for um refusing to be the majority in that case but but the fact of the matter was going into that decision i was worried that this is what was going to happen I was worried that the Supreme Court of Canada was going to say, yes, sexual orientation is a charter protected ground. Because as you know, sexual orientation isn't listed in Section 15. So it's an analogous ground. But, and here was my concern, I was afraid they would say, it applies only to individual characteristics and not to partnership benefits, thereby making it illegal to deny me, you know, a meal in a restaurant, but legal to continue to discriminate against queer families. So for me, it was an enormous relief, enormous. And really, it, after that, it felt kind of like a mopping up op- operation. You know, it, 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 there was no doubt, really, that we, the way forward had been set. And would you have believed that only eight or nine years later, gay marriage would become the state of the law in our country? No, I, you know, that's something, there are many things about about my legal career that astonish me. One of them is that we're sitting here having this conversation. Another is that, and there you are, president of the Canadian Bar Association. I mean, I mean, another is in common law history, where we're taught in law school from precedents to go back 900 years, the idea that you could transform the legal landscape for an entire group of citizens in that blink of an eye was, and and to me, remains astonishing. And then we have watched the wonderful phenomenon of the same thing happening over again for trans people. So to me, the charter has made all the difference in Canada. It, all the difference. Definitely. That's the anchor on which we build all the fights for, for equality. So you mentioned trans rights. So that's, that's a big subject because both of us, as far as I know, are cis people. Mm-hmm. So we're not part of the trans community. However, I know that both of us are strong allies. Defending, talking about trans rights is one of two of my priorities this year. And I know that you've been involved as well. So how... How do you see the relationship between the two communities and what's our role as cis people and what is the role of the trans people in that big discussion? I first got involved in a trans case, I guess, because I had a profile as a queer lawyer and trans people came to see me. And the um, that seemed kind of logical to me at the time, but I knew nothing. So I had to learn from square one. And we... We did a number of things. I was very, very conscious 
of being cis in a in an environment where the issues were trans issues. And so, for example, we we wrote a we got funding from the Law Foundation to look at human rights for trans people in British Columbia. And I worked with a group of trans people called the High Risk Project, or the 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 project was ultimately called the High Risk Project. And the meetings to discuss what protections trans people would have were meetings that I did not attend because I knew that if I did, my voice as a lawyer would be so loud that it would be hard to hear what trans folk were saying. So Sandy Laframboise and Deborah Brady gathered up people from all parts of the trans and gender diverse communities in Vancouver, people who didn't ordinarily speak to each other, drag kings and queens and cross-dressers and transsexuals, as they were then called, gender variant people, everybody. And then they brought to me the results of their deliberations, and we advocated. We were the, BC was the first jurisdiction in Canada to consider adding gender identity and gender expression to the code. And at the time when I went to do the legal research, there was exactly one book in the Canadian library system about trans people. Wow. So it was a, it was a, it was a time. And then of course we did, then, then Kimberly Nixon came to see me and Kimberly Nixon was a, is a trans woman who had volunteered at a rape crisis center. But when she, went to the training program, they confronted her and said, you used to be a man. And though she was legally, medically, socially, in every way a woman, they said she couldn't work there. So we did a human rights case, which, honestly, Steve, in retrospect, I'm not sure that the the timing of that might have been wrong. Like it might have been like doing the same-sex marriage case at the beginning to do a trans woman in a rape crisis center as the kind of one of the very first major trans cases in the country. Too big as a step? Well, more along the lines of you're challenging the very most, you're taking the kind of, you're taking the thing that people feel most um, passionately committed to and challenging it in your first Salvo. So Rape Relief, for example, went to court and argued that Kimberly had no human rights at all, that protection on the grounds of sex under the Human Rights Code meant only protection of men and women, which is like an an appalling proposition. But the Human Rights Tribunal actually wrote a truly excellent judgment and gave Kimberly more their highest award ever. Um, rape relief J. Arden and it went to the Court of Appeal who decided that the human rights analysis was beside the point because rape relief got off the hook by virtue of being a non-profit organization with an exemption certificate. So once again, in from my perspective, we lost the battle and won the war. The, what that case did was establish the way legally to think about trans issues and in in the wake of that case I you know I did things like go to the CASHRA which is the Canadian Association of 
human rights agencies and do training for them about trans issues. And it is really interesting to think about our role as cis people in relation to trans people. Number one, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, the very most important thing is is a, is cultural humility. Not my not my decisions to make. So my job is to listen and then to take what I'm told and enact it in in the in the legal context. How do you see your role in that in that context? It starts with humility because you don't know what you don't know. Trans issues are relatively new in my life. I would like to start with thanking Marie-Laure Leclerc that you probably know. She's a former board member. She was also a founding member of the Women's Network at CBA and so many other things. Um, I was lucky to be chosen to deliver a training uh, to judges on the legal and social history of the LGBTQ2S plus community in Quebec. And I think similar trainings have taken place under SOGIC across the country. So it's by getting to know better each other and working on and updating that training that I learned so much from her. She's a trans woman and it opened just a new world. And then in parallel, I started reading on the issue, uh, seeing what's happening in the US that is extremely troubling. And then when I was close to take the role as president, deciding what would be my priorities. I wanted at least one priority to be related to my community, but I wanted to take the most compelling one, the most urgent one. So it became obvious that talking and advocating for trans rights, and I'm including gender diverse people, two-spirit people, as well. It's a big tent, so I don't want to leave anyone uh, outside, was the way to go. And since then, we've seen the report ordered by Justice Canada on the experience of gender diverse people in our legal system. And it's quite shocking, the data we can find in this report. And even the sentence that you've probably seen, it says, the legal system is not much a solution, but rather the problem that the people are experiencing. So it's it's troubling. And I think it starts with education. And according to the data of the last census last year, there are more than 100,000 people. I think it's a conservative number that are trans and non-binary in Canada. So back to your question, the role of allies, like anything else, it's the same thing for gay people, straight people. If they are supporters, they know what they're talking about, they can talk to people, they can convince people that it may be harder for our community to reach. So I see it as the same thing here. I'm being given as the president a big microphone. I'm being given a lot of podiums. I'm being given airtime. So I'm using that to talk about this issue because otherwise the audience I'm being given for five, 10, 15 minutes may not hear about it otherwise. So that's what I, I did during the last 10 days during my tour in the prairies. So I address trans issues in each and every podium I was given. Probably for many people, it was the first time they were hearing that much, they were hearing this subject yeah. or hearing that much about it. And that's the objective. I don't want to revisit something that has already been settled or that is easy. I want to open new doors. I want to make a change. 
and uh, maybe in 10 years, and it's so shorter than that, in five years, we'll have a big decision or a big law and we'll say, oh, now it's mostly settled, but but maybe not. So maybe, I, but however, there's a long road ahead and I'm a big believer in baby steps, a bit like what you said. Let's start with something smaller, a small bouché, as we see in French, it's easier to swallow. And then let's turn it into a success and build on it. So that's how I see my role. And as you know, I've put in place at CBA a trans advisory group. It's an advisory group on trans, non-binary, gender, diverse issues that will advise me and the following presidents for the next three years and will serve as a think tank, as an advisory group, because I'm not the person, I don't know the answers. And I understand that you've accepted to be part of that advisory group. So thank you for that. We're really happy to see you. Yeah. Uh, and to to have your uh, around the table, mm-hmm. but that's that's how I see my role and my uh, term as president is getting close to the the middle. So things are going fast, but it will survive me, and, and for sure I will make sure I will ask the association to continue. And my successor, John Stefanik, is already committed to that issue to continue this important objective and to make sure we deliver because the final objective is to come up with an educational program, policy, uh, recommendations, and I hope that will address the needs of this community in the legal system, but even beyond. We should be ambitious enough and see ourselves as the association, but also as the legal community, as leaders for the, the whole Canadian community and even beyond. Well, I, I, th- I think it's fantastic that someone with your, your role and your reach and your profile is making that a centerpiece of your tenure because it wouldn't get anywhere near the play otherwise. And it is really wonderful that you're able to take that understanding into communities who haven't heard about it and lend your authority to say, I mean, it's one thing, it's, it's just, it's, it's really great that you're doing that. I'm really thrilled. Thank you. Everyone needs help. So we all need someone to take our hands and yep. move the other steps, yeah. move up. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's how I see myself. I won't walk for people. I won't do it for them. But if I can shove all the snow ahead, help to climb the stairs, help to climb the ladders, I'm there for that. One of the things that I find so fascinating about learning about trans stuff is how much, how exciting it is to learn that things I took for granted are, like I took for granted things that were in error and learning to see the world differently, entirely differently than it was taught to me. There's no greater intellectual fun as far as I'm concerned, than to find and unearth and and set aside the assumptions that I was educated on. I have a question for you, Barbara, because we keep talking about gender, and then there were two genders, and then there were three genders, and then now they're gender diverse, and there's more and more terms. So why are we talking about gender? Like, what what does it matter now that we can marry whoever we love, we can have children with whoever we love? Is the final objective that we will just not collect those data and not ask people to define their gender? Because I'll let you answer. Maybe I can comment after. 
Well, that's it's a very profound question that you're asking. I I think that in in Western thought, since Descartes, there's been a real tendency to divide. What you want to be doing is you want to be defining the separate elements of things. It's a process of deconstruction. It's a process of individuation. It's a process of relating something to something else. And we also come from a Christian or a Judeo-Christian tradition, which began with male and female created he them. And that was certainly what I was teased on in the in my Presbyterian education when I was a child. So the thing about gender, and the same was true to a, in a different way about sexual orientation was that what we are doing is disrupting the very fundamental ideas about what is, quote, natural. And disrupting the natural order is a big deal. Disrupting people's understanding of the natural order is a big deal. The question of how to treat I have, I have some answers and not all the answers about how to treat gender. For example, I have no idea why we're still putting gender markers on carry cards like driver's licenses. What the hell? That it makes absolutely no sense to me. Birth certificates, driver's licenses. I have no idea. As to the question of whether we should continue to record sex assigned at birth when we, when we register the birth of a child, on that question I defer to trans people because uh, it's a really complicated question, and I'm not the one who should be making the answer. You, you made reference to natural order, and in my, in my experience, I see that when we raise the reality of gender diverse people, it triggers people. It triggers, and I'm talking about the, the general population, it triggers people more, I think, I wasn't there in the 50s, 60s, 70s to witness how gay people were triggering the general population. But if I speak about now, I see that people are triggered. So some people would see a trans individual on the street and often the people are uh, disadvantaged or vulnerable or are poor and they would be triggered by the fact that that person, it, it may be a, a man that has would present more as in a feminine way and it, it triggers people. So I, I'm wondering why are people triggered while the person is not menacing, the person is just not there going on its own life. So it seems that it's coming down to something very deep. So when you talked about natural order, maybe that's the thing. We're trying to deconstruct something that is quite profound and old, and we're trying to reconstruct it or on a, on a new basis where there would not be that big divide between men and women and everything that comes with it, expectations of behavior, expectations of, uh, of clothing, expectations of values, of what you like, of, of your career path. So there's a lot at stake here. I remember being at university and seeing for the first time someone who presented as male and was wearing a ponytail. Now, this was 1966, and pretty soon it seemed like all the boys had ponytails in those days. They were all hippies. But, but it was the first time I'd seen such a, such a person. And I, I have a vivid recollection 
of how shocked I was. Like shocked in the sense of a moral, what is this? Both a kind of what is this and a, this is such a transgression of what I had been taught that it really impacted me. And so I have a really, uh, I think, certainly anybody my age has been, and we've grown up with those assumptions and that way of constructing the world. And I guess a person can have one of two reactions. You either feel like that's something you need to protect against the incursions of people who want it to be different or curiosity, which is, that's how it takes me is it makes me, oh my God, there's a way of thinking about this differently. I really love, I've, I love teenagers because they are so blasé relative to folks my age about gender and how people are identifying that it's really, really wonderful to see. Now that doesn't mean that trans adolescents don't have a hell of a hard time because they do, but, but the level of recognition and acceptance of trans and non-binary kids is so much different than it ever was for us, for you or me, I think. That's my experience too. I'm not lucky to have children, but uh, I hear that it's more often than not the case that they're not only accepting, but they just don't care. So they, they don't see things or they don't react to things that the previous generation would take offense or would be triggered. That's a good thing. So does it mean that everything is settled? Oh, God, no. What's your view on what's what's coming ahead in terms of uh, equality rights in general for our community? Forever and a day, I've always said, whenever I've talked about the Charter, I've said, here's the wonderful thing about Section 15 and built right into the Charter is the way that our rights can be lost in the notwithstanding clause. And I watch what's happening in the United States with alarm because the, the particularly anti-trans legislation, bathroom bills, uh, trans women in sport. Books, yeah, education. All that stuff is shocking, shockingly uh, regressive and punitive. And there is in Canada that, that strain of thought and I think it's my own view that that the climate crisis is going to create an economic crisis worldwide, that the climate crisis plus the economic crisis is going to have a really conservatizing effect socially and probably legally, and that our equality rights are none of them safe, that we, we need to be absolutely vigilant and to develop understandings and arguments about why as the world shrinks it is more and more important that we maintain a culture of respect and connection because we really are all in it together and if we if we kind of shrink into ourselves and adopt a me first or only in my backyard kind of approach to things we're doomed even though I, even though that's my prediction. So I think that the work for folks in the generations 
behind us in some ways is more difficult because the because the world is on fire for anybody who's not a lawyer the the way it works is that the charter says that we're going to guarantee that any law that that discriminates can be struck down because it's unconstitutional but in order to get all the provinces to sign on to this thing what they did was make a loophole that said a provincial government or a, or federal government for that matter could opt out of the charter as long as they wrote it into the law and said notwithstanding the charter that's why we call it the notwithstanding clause notwithstanding that if you say explicitly that this operates notwithstanding the charter you can go right ahead and discriminate all you want in the law and the expectation at the time was that it would be politically unsaleable for a government to wade in there and explicitly legislate against somebody's right to be free from discrimination and for a while for many years the notwithstanding clause was used very very rarely and that seemed so it seemed to be true their their judgment about that my own sense is that particularly now as the world turns and as the and as the world burns that calculus is going to be different and i myself am not an eternal optimist and i i think we have really hard times coming we'll know more shortly stay tuned <laughs> what what would you tell barbara to a uh, young uh, queer or trans uh, law student what what are the advice you would give that person or even to yourself if you were transported back to today but you are you're younger and you have your career ahead of you so what would be your your advice I would say be all of who you are that the legal profession as I entered it really was not welcoming with all of who I was they for starters they didn't want me as a woman you know they asked me questions when I was articling like does your husband know that you are going to be a lawyer and what does he think about that what kind of birth control do you use that kind of thing I grew up in a regime where the Supreme Court of Canada wrote all of its judgments in third person he with no recognition that that didn't include everybody certainly there was no recognition of me as a queer either as a queer citizen or as a queer lawyer and there was no recognition about the fact that the legal profession was almost entirely white and entirely male and i i call that norm and his wife norma ran the legal profession Nor norma didn't have much of a role back then but so i think that the profession is really changing and that and that in particular the profession is actively valuing participation and representation from communities who are not straight white able bodied cisgendered men and that as a community of of law students and and lawyers we have a real opportunity to to create a welcoming legal environment in every area we practice if we bring all of who we are with us to work instead of trying to uh, in quotation marks act like a lawyer which means leaving part of ourselves behind 
I totally agree. I would tell my if you ask me the same question. Let me ask you the same question. <laughs> what do you say to that question? I would tell that person, or I will tell myself, to be more confident. It took me years to develop the confidence I have now, and I still have doubts. We all do. If I would have had that confidence earlier, maybe I would have done things differently. I would also, because we're talking about the fact that the legal community is changing, the values of the following generation are different than the previous generation, and I think it's always the case, but the, the, the previous, which is me and you, the person that are in the legal profession, worry that the next generation doesn't have the same values, so it won't work, and they won't work as hard, while the profession will change, it's inevitable, because... 15 years, 20 years forward, the law students will be the leader of the legal profession. So it will change. So that's why I'm telling them, don't hesitate to ask, to ask questions, to ask for changes, to challenge, not to break everything apart the first day, but to slowly move, adapt, configure differently. Currently, the legal profession is not well. You've seen the data of the last wellness survey, the massive wellness survey that we ordered, the Federation of Law Society of Canada and the Canadian Bar Association that was performed by the Université de Sherbrooke, Professor Cadieux. And it's a robust study, and it shows that lawyers are suffering from mental health issues at a rate much higher than the general population and much higher than any other profession. It's worrying. It means that changes must be done to how we practice law in private practice, how we practice law at government, how we practice law in legal departments of businesses, wherever you practice. No one seemed to be immune from mental health issues. So back to the values of the new generation. I think it's a refreshing wave that is coming and that will challenge how we are practicing and maybe the sacrifices we're doing and that the previous generations did in a context that is now different. Different because we are now in relationship where both people work, which is a good thing, but it brings its challenges. People have children, they want to have a life. They want to be involved in the raising of their children. They want to be involved in their community. So it's more balance and more balance means probably a better life and less mental health issues. So I'm, I'm positive, I'm confident that these two things can align and solve some of the issues we've been seeing now. But what do you think? I think one of the problems is that law has demanded that we not be human, that we have a social role as authorities, that we are expected to know and to advance some version of the world without re explicitly without regard to our personal situation. The enterprise of lawyering is an enterprise of dividing yourself from yourself. And that is your basic recipe for mental illness, mental unwellness, perhaps is a better term that dividing yourself from yourself as a condition of how you move through the world just can't work. So oddly, I think part of what we need is to knock us lawyers off those pedestals a bit. We're not, we're not those people. We can't be. 
we can't be the authorities always. And we need to be able to speak, just to talk about mental health issues, to talk about addictions, to talk about the personal cost of, of the way the profession is structured. So, yes, I think we need to do things like change the numbers of hours that we work and work in extended parental leave and those, all of those sensible kinds of things. But there's something about the model of lawyering that also has to change, I think. There's a lot of potential in also deconstructing the superhero model because your career, my career, it's not a straight line. It's a big curve and with sometimes big setbacks that looks like big defeats at the time, but you learn more from these challenges often than from the the best parts of your career because you develop mechanism of bouncing back, you develop resiliency. What would you say is what what from from your perspective, what in your life what is the best thing for you about being a lawyer? What is, what's that, what's the, what do you cherish? It's helping people. Uh, I would say it's helping people, assisting them. And I always still today see of being able to receive like the most intimate details of the life of someone like they confide in you they trust you and they ask you for help as an unbelievable privilege it's all pieces of life that are it's and it's often it's a story that is difficult to hear or is challenging because i practice litigation i often say people don't come up to you when you have an idea they come up to you when it's broken <laughs> Or it's, it's it's more after the fact than uh, than when you have a project, but it's where people are vulnerable, and that's where it makes a difference. And you can with the we can not always do that, but often with the right skills, with patience, with bienveillance. I don't remember the term in English, but just being just listening carefully and being nice to people, you and giving them obviously legal advice and recommendations. You allow people to go back, the train to go back on the rails and to start again. And it's it's great. So the, and, and why I'm doing it is when people call you after or they tell you at the end, thank you for having been there for me. It makes a big difference. So it's, it's quite similar than a doctor, a psychologist, a therapist, or any other professional that is assisting people. But it's a, the legal problems challenge people very profoundly because sometimes it's their financial stability that is at stake, their license to practice as a professional, their marriage, their children, their status, if it's immigration. So we, we assist people in, in all step of life and their big decisions and big problems. That's why we need to be healthy. We need to be in shape. We need to be rested. We need to be well, because when the oxygen masks drop down, you need to put it first. So we have to think about ourselves first to protect our own life, to make sure we're well before being able to help other people, because otherwise it won't work. For me, I came to the law on purpose. I had discovered feminism in 1970, along with the rest of the country. And I looked around for, for something that would enable me to have power to make change. And I picked law for that reason. I didn't, I wasn't one of those kids that wanted to be a lawyer from the time I was three. And what I am really happy about is being able to make the, 
I guess I would say to empower people. That is to, and that has a bunch of pieces like making people not afraid of the law exactly anymore. Understanding that though the law may say we have no rights, we have a right to say we have rights and we have a right to pursue those rights and we have a right to have those rights respected. And that that is an amazing thing to go from being literally, I mean, for, for me, going from the wilderness when I came out, it, gay sex was illegal. It was a, it was, it was a mental illness by definition to be queer. I was locked up as a lesbian in a mental hospital for that reason. So to, to be, to be able to move not only myself, but to be able to work stand beside people in the community and walk with them through the, that, that process of, of coming to understand that there is power in the law and the power is available to be used is really been gratifying. Have you ever thought of going in politics, Barbara? Uh, when I got together with my partner 30, 31 years ago, she said to me, do you have any political aspirations? And I said, no. And she said, that's good, because I'm not down for being a politician's wife. And so, so that was the end of that. <laughs> it was love over politics. <laughs> so, no, I never, I, I don't think I would have been very good in that forum. I think you would have, you would have, you would have been fantastic, Barbara. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, Steve. Really fun. Indeed, it was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing with me and with our audience your history, your thoughts, your leadership tips, and so many other good things you covered during our discussion. That was, uh, that was amazing. Thanks, Steve. And if there's anything I can do to support you in your presidency or beyond, just let me know. I will. The advisory group was already a big thing. Thank you for that. Okay. Onward and upwards. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if I may, please allow me to recommend our other great podcast channels, Modern Law with Eve Faggy, editor of CBA National, and The Every Lawyer with Julia Tetro-Provencher.